Welcome, everybody, to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, um, and it has been a while since I've said that. It's fun to say it again. Um, we finished out the series in January with an interview with my son, which I think is now the highest rated one of all time, which is very nice. Um, so I did about 100 or so episodes of that and sort of took a break to write a book. And now I'm back doing a limited series to shamelessly promote that book. It's called Designed for Cognitive Bias. And uh, we're going to do a limited season of interviews with some really awesome people, the first of whom is with us today. Her name is Christina Halverson. Christina, tell us all about the wonderful things you do, and please don't leave out anything you might have to say about squirrels. Okay, yeah, well, this is take two. David, thank you so much for having me on the Cognitive Bias Podcast today. It's a delight to be here. Uh, I was I was joking earlier, although it's not really a joke, uh, that my one of my primary activities right now is sitting and staring out the window at my beautiful bird feeder and uh, watching the squirrels and yelling at them for trying to steal the seeds. And the, the thing about mentioning that is that I know you're all there with me. I know you are. <laughs> Uh, so I am the uh, CEO and founder of Brain Traffic. We are a content strategy consultancy based in Minneapolis. We also produce a couple of really great content strategy events, the first of which uh, is Confab, which has been going on since 2011. And then we have a brand new conference happening in just six short weeks uh, called Button, <laughs> which is uh, all about product content strategy. So we can chat about that later. Yeah, oh, and I also wrote a book a very long time ago called Content Strategy for the Web. No one asked me when the next book is coming out. That's not, okay, we can talk about that later. <laughs> um, yeah, and what she's downplaying is it's sort of like considered one of the foundational works of content strategy, but no, no, no big deal, no big deal. Um, so uh, some ground rules, because we are not in fact alone in this podcast. We have a bunch of wonderful folks who've decided to join up and join us. Oh. This is actually a Zoom call that we're recording with, I think at the moment, maybe 35 folks all kind of hanging out. And just for everyone on the call, the way it's going to work is uh, Christine and I are going to chat for a bit, and we're going to throw it open to questions. If you have a question, feel free to type it into the chat. And please preface your question with, uh, in all caps, either video, which means you want to come on the call and uh, ask the question yourself, or text, uh, which means you want me to read the question. But the all caps part is important because it makes it way easier for me to kind of scroll through and be like, oh, that's a question. Uh, so that, that's how we'll do that. Um, but for starters, this is like my new question I want to open all my podcasts with, with, with which is, uh, Christina, what have you been thinking about lately? Really? Yeah, seriously. And if it's like squirrels, let's do it. <laughs> it's really, it's not squirrels. Okay. It's not, it's not squirrels, David. Uh, what have I been thinking about lately? Well, there's a lot going on, my friend. It's 2020. <laughs> you don't say. In the world. <laughs> So, you know, I guess that the best way to, uh, I got, let, me, let me break it down because I think that depending on who you are, where you are in life, what your different responsibilities are and what you are hoping for in the future, <laughs> you're focused on a lot of, you got a lot of different things. Right now, I, my kids are starting online school uh, on Tuesday mm. and we are sort of expecting that they will not be going back to regular school for a very long time. And so that is what's on my mind right now today is like, how can I best set them up for success uh, and also continue to run a company and plan an event um, that was supposed to be in Seattle in six weeks and is now online. Uh, so online distance learning is like one of the big things that I'm thinking about. And I'm especially thinking about it uh, you know, we're really lucky here and that we've got the technology and the fast internet and they've got support from their parents who can work at home and who are able to do that. And I'm just spending a lot of time thinking about all the other kids who 
cannot have a parent at home, you know, or who are taking care of their younger siblings because the parent is, is at work or who do not have a good internet connection. And so, you know, am I thinking about content strategy? Yeah, I'm thinking about content strategy, but largely I'm thinking about uh, sort of this, this, there's no winning with the online, with the online or with the education system right now. There's just no good, no good answer. So, um, yeah, but we move forward. That is, I wake up every morning and I think we move forward, we move ahead. So, yeah. And I think, um, a lot of what I've been thinking about lately ties into that, right? So, uh, as I think about inclusive design, I've been working on a workshop about it and, just seeing the response to it, like we do a lot of questions about research, the, the thing that seems to start coming up is this idea that when we do research, and let's say it is for a school app, um, we would talk to the school administrators, we would talk to the uh, students, maybe we talk to, you know, some of the parents, but I feel like often, you know, we would say, okay, let's talk to some, you know, work at home, you know, people maybe, and we'll talk to some people who uh, are going to be like at their jobs or whatever, but mm -hmm. it would be very limited. Like, I feel like we'd, we'd keep that a fairly small bucket. And a lot of what's been um, coming out as I explore inclusive design is, well, what about the people who are impacted by this thing, but may not be directly using it? Or yeah. what about the set of people, like the set of people designing that product probably are work at home people. And how good are they going to be at thinking about or making sure to include a product that's going to work for folks who are literally not going to be home or are going mm -hmm. to be like someone's sibling? Like you said, like you basically just listed a group of people that the products designed to help people do school at home probably weren't, probably weren't in their mind, probably weren't well, designed for. And, you know, another thing that I think about a lot when, I, when I'm thinking about content strategy, like writ large, is that it's not just the product that we are designing for people to use, right? It's the entire ecosystem of communication around that product. And so in this instance, the product of choice of the St. Paul, I live in Minnesota, the St. Paul Public School District is called Schoology. Well, when that launched last year, it was like, it's largely based on folder structures and ways to submit a documentation. And the folder structures were just all over the place with the teachers. They didn't know what they were doing. They were taken by surprise as much as we are. So this year it's fine. The folder structures are all like the same for every class and that's going to help with learning. However, you know, you know, and like the sign in is pretty clear. However, the communication that I have been getting around this product with regard to when it's going to be used, uh, how to log in, what to happen, what happens if you can't log in is just, it's, I can't understand it because it's so thick and it's so poorly written and there's so much of it. And so this is like, no matter how stellar and useful the product is itself, you know, if you're sitting down and English is your second language, for example, I mean, I could barely wade through this stuff myself. And so in that instance, there isn't anybody really sitting there considering that content ecosystem that lives around the product itself. And don't even get me started on like the help and support documentation. It's just really, it's a, it's a special time. Yeah. So I, I wasn't going to name names, but we are using Schoology as well. And like myself, oh, let's name names, man. right now in the other room using that product, yeah. like he's having his school day. We started on Monday. Um, and I have been going through a conniption fit around how they've decided to structure things because there was one product for attending class and another product for the schedule for that class. Oh, yeah. And like, it's funny too, because like I'm ranting about how easy it would be to literally just build a Google calendar 
I know. <laughs> where I could have it in the schedule, click on it and go directly to that class. But it takes like five, like even now I'm starting to rant. And my kid is like, daddy, I'm the one who has to use it. It's okay. Like he's trying yeah, to calm yeah, me yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, no, you don't understand the principle. <laughs> like right. I am offended as a UX practitioner at how terribly this is all designed. But you bring yes. up, yeah. Yeah, but and, and, you know, it, the, the, the educators, I don't know how many of them were actually consulted about, yeah. because that's the thing you think, okay, Schoology, it's the kids that have to go in and they have to use it and it has to be intuitive for them. Well, you know, how much are educators enjoying using it? Like, were they included, <laughs> you know, just as much in the design? Like, I don't, it's hard to say. <laughs> Because I also yeah. can't see what's going on behind the scenes. But yeah, and 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 like yeah, we can sort of conjecture based on our own experiences consulting any number of CMSs or LMSs, right? But um, but yeah, and there's a piece of it, like you said, there's the communication around it. And school mm -hmm. systems historically have never been necessarily awesome communicators to begin with, right? There's uh, always yeah. you know. So to then layer in, okay, now you have to communicate uh, tech support right? Yeah. <laughs> Into yeah. the equation. Which was a whole, you know, they rolled out iPads like five years ago and that was a whole other yeah. ball of wax, but yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the degree to which the education system has to now bear also being a technology company also being, you know, like I, I don't know that anyone thought about that in those terms yeah. at all. <laughs> no. No. Well, why would they? Nobody had global pandemic on their checklist yeah. when they were doing user scenarios. Do you know? I mean, now they do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm noticing things in the comments like um, uh, French Canadian kids don't have access to a lot of tools because of the language barrier, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't think, I think English in general. So, so one of the things I'm getting into now is this idea of at the beginning of a project, uh, the team getting together and saying, okay, well, what are our identities and how is that going to bias this pro mm. our, our approach to this project? Mm. And it's funny how many different identities and presuppositions we bring to the table. And you think about the big ones like ethnicity and gender and sexuality and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sexual preference and um, class and, and, and all these other things. And then it's easy, even if you list all of that out to be like, oh, what's your first language? <laughs> right. <laughs> and like yep. everybody on this team has English as their primary language. Yep. Most of us are not bilingual. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and like it's, it's very, I think it's very easy to sort of miss some just vitally core things. Yeah. Well, yeah, the stuff that is oftentimes, I mean, you write about this, the stuff that is right in front of our face is the stuff that we forget to acknowledge or include when we're thinking about, you know, our own biases. They yeah. use like the, the really super obvious ones. Mm -hmm. So, so in addition to grappling with the education system, <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of the conversations we've having lately have been around just understanding how other folks, like you've, you've been at content strategy for a while now. Mm. And I want to talk a little bit about how uh, our clients, our bosses, like their biases towards understanding or not understanding what we do and mm. how that manifests and what we're asked to do. And when we're brought into projects, like sure. how have you seen that evolve? Like the perception of content strategy, how have you seen that kind of evolve as, as okay. you've been in, in, in it? Well, funny timing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I have, I just, okay. So there is a, there's sort of been this arc that I've witnessed over the last, I really started thinking about and talking about content strategy probably 16 years ago. 
but didn't sort of like stand up and go, hi, this is a thing I wanted to, I want to talk about personally, like on more of a public stage until probably 2008. And in 2008, the deal was every single designer and coder was like content, giant pain point, don't know what to do, driving me nuts. But absolutely, they didn't know how to do it, what, you know, what to do, what the deliverables were, what the questions were that they needed to be asking. And the writer is going, I just, I, can you just talk to me like a little bit sooner than before you hand me the wireframes with the lorem ipsum and ask me to re replace it? And so that's where we were 12 years ago. And what happened is that this spectacular community of people who had been practicing content strategy all came together and began to like super generously like share documentation, share processes, apply to speak at UX conferences. UX leaders and curators, uh, you know, were going, oh yeah, content, and kind of bringing that into the fold. And there was like this really great, solid uh, practice of content strategy for websites early, earlier, you know, and then is obviously developed for product that really came to the forefront of like the user experience and design process. And that was amazing and great and exciting. And people were, uh, you know, getting more recognition in the workplace and they were getting paid for the complexity of the work that they were doing. Uh, and then at the same time we had content marketing happening, which um, they use the phrase content strategy a lot. And they used to fight them about that a lot, all the time. And just a couple of months ago, I was, I went on to sort of like one of the primary user experience publications online. And I was like, where's, where's, where's the stuff about content strategy? And I started digging and they were like, it was buried from three years ago, but it was no longer one of the primary topics. And I started looking around. I looked at I have a tweet storm prepared for this that I have just not yet unleashed. I started looking at user experience conferences, at publications, at training programs, both you know for private companies and also also at uh, universities. And it's like it's gone. It content strategy has just like disappeared. I don't know where. I don't know what happened. And so, and but what what is happening though is that there's this rise of UX writing. And so what I what I think is that content marketing fought so hard for content and content strategy that within organizations, content and marketing just came, became synonymous. And so, and I think that the user experience teams were just like, you know what? All right. I can't, we can't fight you anymore. You've got all the money. You've got all the power in this instance. Like we're just going to take the content. That's what I think is that. Am I ranting? I'm ranting. We got to talk about oh, Please do. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but so that's what I think has happened uh, is that marketing just kind of like took over content in a way that, that, that I think that we're all just really tired. So my concern now is that UX writing has become like this super hot thing. However, what, almost everything I see and read about UX writing, it's happening in a real vacuum from any sort of strategic consideration about how it should be included, not just in like the day-to-day -day you know, front lines, design process, sprint, et cetera, but like what's informing it beyond just what should, you know, what should we say right here on this particular screen? Um, and I'm real concerned about that because I think that what that is doing is just kicking the content problem down the field again. And that is a big part of why we are hosting Button in October is we really want to level up the conversation around words that exist within digital products beyond UX writing. Because it's not, it's not a thing that can stand on its own. And bringing it back around to bias, a big reason that it can't stand on its own is because when you're in there and you're in the front lines and you're on the sprint, it's super easy 
to make assumptions without some kind of a strategic foundation that has been developed and stress tested with user research and testing and informed by data and all of that. So this is clearly something I've been thinking about recently. You bring up an interesting point because I never thought of it this way, but content strategy is in and of itself a tool meant to curb bias, right? Because you like to your point. For sure. Uh, yeah. Well, you're, that's, you're, I mean, you read your book, David, it is, it, I mean, it, there's a reason you've been speaking at content strategy conferences for the last several years. I mean, you've also been active, you know, in like the wider UX design community, but a lot of it comes back to how the story is unfolding and where the, you know, what the words are and how you're engaging conversation or delivering information or, you know, confirming ask, action or task completion. It comes down to the words. Well, it's, it's funny. Like, I feel like in that context, one of the best tools in the content strategy belt is uh, objective matrices is this tool that i learned yes. from analytics folks uh who you know back when i was working at epam we had probably the best analytics team like we were better than google and i, I can say that literally because that was one of our clients and we were like better um <laughs> but but um but they, they, they taught me very early on. I was working on a project where we were rolling out. It was one of those like dream up the future kind of product projects where it's oh, like, yeah. hey, come up with some crazy new ideas to engage our users. And it was like, oh, fun. Let's be innovative, right? Remember when innovation was like the word? <laughs> so it was like that kind of thing, right? Right? Yeah. And, um, and they pulled me aside one day and said, hey, this is great. Um, we're going to sit down and write down what the goals of the website are. And then you're going to tell me which features match which goals. And I'm like, what a novel concept. <laughs> I, yeah, the, it is crazy to me. I tweet a lot of crap. But the tweets that really take off are literally the ones that are like, it's really hard to know what content to put on your website if you're not sure what your website is for. Like this thing that just lives inside me 100% of the time. It's nothing that I even think about, but like, it just, people are like, yeah, you know, and they just take it and they run with it. And suddenly there's like hundreds and hundreds or thousands of retweets and likes. And it's just extraordinary to me that we are at this point. Like, why is this not, why is this even a conversation anymore? I mean, you're talking about your days at EPAM, but this is still a conversation, you know, all the time that people are having. And that is, I, I'm giving a talk at an event apart this fall, uh, which is a conference hosted by Jeffrey Zeldman and, and Eric Meyer. And it's been around for 20 years. Um, and they literally were like, can you just come and talk about how terrible web content is? And I was just like, that's, that's where we're at right now. Well, yep, I, that's the talk I gave in 2008. But you know what? If I have to go back and give it again, I will give it again. Because apparently we got to get this engine revved up again. I think that um, it's interesting. Like I, I did my most content strategy consulting when I was working for the Corzo Center for the Creative Economy. We had these um, office hours, basically, where different experts. It was a really cool program where, for free, anyone in the community could come in and get a half-hour consultation with really any discipline, right? So we had oh, yeah, that's great. geared towards small business, but you know, we had lawyers, we had content strategists, you know, whatever. So I would come in and I would, you know, do like once a month, I do like four consultations back to back, and. What I found was I wasn't really talking to people about content. Most of my conversations were about strategy. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, like, on the one hand, it is, I had the same sort of, like, people don't get just the idea of setting goals, like, just as a concept of thinking well, about they, goals. They think that, the, they think that like, the, to, the tactical to-do and getting that checked off, that that's the goal. 
Right? Exactly. They, yeah. they, and I saw this when I was in publishing, it would be like, well, our competitors are on Twitter. We need to be on Twitter, right? It's this tool focused yeah. yeah. thing. And like, I had a job because people didn't understand strategy. And well, like, on the one hand, I'm like, yeah. Yeah. And how many times have, you know, designers and content strategists, anybody that's trying to build a thing been working in like a, a discovery session or a research session or whatever, I cannot count the number of times that people are just like, this really feels more like business strategy. And I'm just like, oh, does it really? That's fine. Because the questions I'm asking, you should have answers to. And the fact that we're having to have these conversations around these questions right now, you know, you should probably, I mean, I, can, I don't know how many projects I talked myself out. I like unsold because we would get in there and they wouldn't have answers to business goals and user needs. And I was just like, I can't tell you how to craft a content ecosystem or strategic foundation or plan you don't know what you're doing. And so it's just, yeah. It's, yeah. And it, it's, I think the reason, like I'm starting to discover like literally right now, as we talk, the reason that I'll people are so later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, welcome to content therapy. Um, <laughs> uh, that's why you're yeah, in a therapist. Office. Yeah. The, um, yeah. the, um, the, the, the reason we are so bad at, at strategy is because strategy requires what Daniel Kahneman would call system two thinking, right? So uh, a lot of my work in the book, a lot of my understanding of cognitive bias is um, strongly influenced by a guy named Daniel Kahneman who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, which I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. It's like the Bible of cognitive bias. And the basic premise is you have kind of two systems of thinking and system one is the super fast thing you use if I need to look at someone's face and know if they're angry right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a snap judgment, no processing required. Whereas system two is what I use if I have to answer the question, what is 1,076 plus 522? Like I can't do a snap judgment on that, right? I need to I slow my down my thinking. Is broken. Yeah, <laughs> as most of ours are. So yeah. goals and setting goals and tying them to strategies and tactics require system two thinking. Mm -hmm. Just saying my competitors on Twitter, we need to be on Twitter is system one. Like I can just jump to that. I can jump yep. to a thing, a shiny thing and be like, we need to do that. Well, so here's what's interesting and in that I've been talking to my staff about a lot because it's so unnerving, especially I think so many small business owners, well, many of us are dealing with this as small business owners, is that a lot of what we are dealing right now, I think is more on that tactical systems one thinking. Like for me to try to think about where I'm going to take my organization strategically over the next three years, give me a break. Like, no, I, my two primary offerings are on-site consulting and live events, right? So I, I am, we we're like right now, I just think there are a lot of people doing a lot of on the ground sort of tactical block and tackle thinking, which interestingly, and this, this comes back around, begins to introduce all kinds of opportunities for blind spots or bias, right? Where, oh, this is the thing that has worked before, so I'm just going to go to that. Or, oh, this is a thing that I see somebody that I admire doing, so I'm just going to do that. Uh, so I just, I, it is hard right now when there's sort of like threats coming at you from every side to slow down and talk about strategy. And I think that a lot of our clients are struggling with that as well. Yeah. And like, not to make this too political or absolutely to make it too political. Like, how can I you think, not talk about politics in a conversation about bias? I know Continue. it's, it's like, someone was asking me, are you going to do a book about, um, uh, election bias? And I'm like, that's just called bias. 
<laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> but um, I think, so there's like research that shows that like, let's say I'm sitting down at a computer trying to like fill out a form and make a decision. Like the more pressure I can put on you during that process, yeah. um, the worse, like the faster you'll fill out the form. Yeah. And the more you'll be like, skip over the terms of service, right? Or check on that checkbox that's actually going to send me a newsletter or yep. give out information maybe I don't want to give out, right? Urgency creates poor decision-making. So I think what you're saying about that is super relevant. And I think that like, this is kind of the worst environment to have an election in <laughs> oh, yeah. because we're being asked to make a very important decision and a very important set of decisions because it's not just president, right? Um, there's a whole ticket we're being asked to make decisions about um, under a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, potentially not even being sure if our ballot is going to get counted. Like there's so much... Yeah. But in general, like that's been like that's been how this government operates is make you really scared mm-hmm. and then ask you to make a decision very quickly that mm-hmm. will lean toward poor judgment because you're scared. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's nothing new. That's pretty much how totalitarian governments have worked ever since, you know, the dawn of time. But I'm not gonna make this political, but <laughs> <laughs> you see how hard I'm trying here. But uh, but 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 the the where I bring it back to goals is this idea of like, so for example, defund the police. I think there's two reasons that is a concept is really challenging for people. One is just the language, right? Of just what, I'm not going to have a police force, which right. if you're used to thinking of the police as helpful is scary. Right. And if you're used to thinking of the police as not helpful, you're like, it's about time. Um, but the other piece of it is the actual activity requires you to rethink what are the goals of the police, Right. Mm-hmm. So, so Camden, New Jersey, like, I think this is a really interesting UX example. Camden, New Jersey literally fired their police force a few years ago and rehired them. So technically it wasn't defunding because they kind of refunded it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was, we are going to build this from scratch. And one of the exercises they went through was say, okay, Hey, you're all fired. If you want your job back, you're going to have a brand new list of requirements, sure. right. To get your job back. But those requirements came from the community and asking the community, hey, what do you want the police to do? What is the goal? What is the purpose of the Mm -hmm. police? Mm -hmm. And that level of thinking is the level you need to play at and the right people to talk to if you're going to do like the whole systemic change thing. And I think that's part of the reason it's so hard to do systemic change. Yeah, I would agree. I, I will also say, and this is something that has made me insane for years, that I think that, I think that there's a significant messaging problem that exists at the party level Mm. because defund the police sounds scary and sounds like your safety net is getting pulled out from under you and understanding conceptually what that means requires you to set aside a lot of bias and a lot, you know, and people do not have the emotional or intellectual reserves to do that right now. So, you know, what happened in Camden, Camden, as just like a bystander, I would not think, oh, they defunded the police, right? Like they redid the police. They reimagined the police. They reinvented the police. They brought it back around to what it was supposed to be for. And, and so, and I just feel like the words that we choose at the national level to describe opportunity and threat are so critical and, and, I, I am a member of the left, and I just feel like the left does such a horrible job at picking their words. 
uh, in terms of creating that urgency and creating that opportunity. And so that I think is another thing is how can we use language that actually invites people in versus pushes them away? Right. And I, and I think that to some degree, there's probably a large part of the part of the party that's just like, I don't care if they don't get it, then I don't, you know, they need to, they need to hop on board or, or whatever. And that's just not, that's not how, that's not how conversation works. That works. That's not how education works. That's not how um, persuasion works. Yeah. And I think that, that is a big moral center, right? Is this struggle between the methods we use as liberals, I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm pointing out liberals because historically, as I, I, would, I was going to say since the 90s, but honestly, since the Southern strategy, um, have been very good at using language to get shit done. Like that's that's a tool that they really get. Mm-hmm. Um, and liberals sometimes get. So that's why I'm focusing on liberals here. But that there is this struggle between um, methodology and outcome that I think we have maybe a little more often or at least historically, we seem mm-hmm. to have had a little more often mm-hmm. um, that I think where you do, and, and language is exactly one of those battlefields where it's like, do we use the term that describes the thing or do we use the term that's going to be more appealing? Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. Or do we, or do we use the term that more people are going to resonate with Yeah, because it's, for example, plain English, yeah. right? It's not going to threaten feel threatening or exclusionary to people who don't have a GED, for example, don't have their high school degree. It's not going to like push them away because we are talking or writing at a 10th or 12th grade level versus trying to communicate with folks, you know, to, to bring people into the conversation. And I just, you know, I think that, I think that there, there are organizations that struggle with that legal organizations, medical organizations, higher educational institutions, where the way that they, that they come at, communication ends up excluding large swaths of the population because they're not thinking about how to bring them into the conversation. They're just thinking about what they need to tell them. Yeah. And I think there's definitely an intellectualism bias going on there, right? Like I think at the end of the day, there is this weird, like we want to, we, we want to be the big tent. We want to bring everybody, we want to help people, but it's this very, it's in this very patriarchal way. It's in this very, it's like, but we don't want to sound stupid. That's another well, thing. Too. Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. it down. But I think even I think even the notion of dumb it down, like Sarah Richards is great about talking about this, right? right? Like mm-hmm. uh, like the difference between that you're not dumbing it down, you're opening it up, right? Um, and I think that attitude makes sense. I think there is, I suspect there is a little bit of of racism, frankly. There's a little bit of of classism, where it's like I don't want to reach out to. I'm not comfortable with poor rural folks. Sure. Right. <laughs> sure. Right. And there's these prejudices around that, that are, you know, this unconscious little tick that goes off when you start sure. thinking about using plain language. Um, and I feel like that's something I agree. Like, I think the solution to that supposed conundrum of what kind of language do we use? Plain language. That's the yep. language you use. I absolutely agree with that. And I wonder, mm-hmm. I wonder if that, the reason we haven't necessarily embraced that as much as we might is some reticence, right, around what 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 we associate plain language with. Yeah, I think. I mean, this is this is maybe <laughs> we maybe need to change the subject. <laughs> uh, but it, it, I just because I have a lot of criticisms around how the communication happens and to whom and where, and I think that 
I, I would suggest it's maybe not reticence to use plain language so much as it is reticence to be um, super, super scary bold in a way that brings in the people that we're trying to help versus pushes them away. Yeah. Um, I am not seeing outright questions, but I am seeing Mike gesticulate. So uh, Mike, <laughs> do you have anything you'd like to add to this conversation, Mike Montero? I think it's ego. Mm. It's yeah. ego. For, we, oh, for sure. Absolutely. We are so invested in sounding smarter than everyone uh, else. Yep. And making sure that we're justifying that, that highly expensive education that we've got. <laughs> that we refuse to actually communicate with people. Because for us to communicate with anybody, the first step is to, is, is to convince them that we're smarter than they are. Mm-hmm. And that will mm -hmm. always fail. That's always mm -hmm. stupid. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, and I think that that plays itself out across every context where you're communicating in, you know, personal relationships, in workplace relationships, in how you're trying to engage people on your website, in how you're trying to invite people in to use a product, in how you are trying to convince them to sign up for something. All of that. If we, if people feel that they are being talked down to, or that they are, we're trying to help them level up. Uh, yeah, you're going to lose them. And, and rightly so. You're going to lose me. Yeah, and it's no coincidence that that is often like the bludgeon, like the right uses, or that people oh, like sure. say is sort of like, hey, you know, they think they're better than you, like um, that for sure. And you know what? We do. That's the problem. I mean, yeah, that how how that refrain, you think you're better than me? Like that phrase should be like emblazoned. <laughs> like every time you're reading a piece of content that you're going to like present to somebody, you should sort of have that in the back of your head. It's like at the end of this, <laughs> is someone gonna say to themselves, You think you're better than me? <laughs> yeah. So one of the one of the things, and this kind of actually ties into it. So we're talking about persuasion. One of the things I try to get at in the book is this notion of, you know, you are going to be in situations where you have to convince people who have more money and influence than you to consider options that they might not be comfortable considering, mm -hmm. which is just a fancy way of saying you want to do a thing and your client or your boss is acting like a jerk about it. Um, that never <laughs> happens. No one on this call knows what you're talking about. So I, I suggest, you know, inception and, and risk aversion, I sort of go through a series of strategies yep. that might help, but I'm curious experientially, like what have you found to be a fairly consistent or what, what, are, what are some of the biases you've encountered or the behaviors you've encountered that you've sort of over time developed a tool around to say, okay, it's probably time for me to say this or use this approach. You know, I would say the number one thing, because I, you know, I, when I, when I, I'm in the room, it tends to be with uh, the decision makers, right? And so the, it's the people that are like making the big call about like, you know, how we're going to transform the website or whether or not this suite of features is going to launch with this product or whether this product's going to, you know, be taken off the table altogether or whatever. And um, I think that Erica Hall has spoken and written so eloquently about this topic in research, which is that typically at that level, research is only going to get you so far because leadership rarely wants to hear that what they think is wrong. 
And that is, you know, I think that's part of how you get to leadership. It's just like this extraordinary confidence that like what you're saying is the thing that people need to be listening to. Um, but, but all the research and all the data and all the world, you can build it, you can build the foundation, you can have the documentation, you can have it all. And then you bring it, you put it in front of them. And if you say, here's what the research says you should do, those people are going to check right out. They don't care because they're, they're like, well, we understand, but research has bias and research, you know, you, how many people did you talk to and what was your method of research? Because what we think is X, Y, and Z. And so I think that, I, I think it's the method that you inception. That is what I have been, what I have found the most helpful. For example, when I, when I'm coaching people and going in for interviews, I always tell them if the more you can get the interviewer talking about their role and their, and their company and what they're excited about, the better they're going to feel like that interview went. And so I find that that is exactly the same case when you are in conversation with leadership or people with power, decision-making power, is the more you can get them talking and help and like work to shape the conversation to where, you know, around and around towards well, what's the worst thing that could happen if that went that, or let's tell me more about that. Let's dig into that a little bit more, or, you know, here that you're saying this, and here's another perspective that came through in the research. And where do you think that came from? Like really working to, again, draw them into the conversation and sort of help shape, you know, how they're thinking about stuff versus going in and telling them what to think is, is super critical. Yeah. And you're, you're avoiding by doing that, you're avoiding a very key bias called reactance, which is that you mm -hmm. can't tell me what to do bias. And I think you're yeah. right. Like people who are in those positions are used to being listened to. They're used to yep. not being challenged on those things. They're certainly used to not being told what to do. For and, sure. But, but more fundamentally, like, I don't think this is just a power thing. Like there's a fundamental thing in human nature where we need to be heard. And it reminds me. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of something um, AOC once said when she was talking about like conversations with people who disagreed with her and her tactic, if you will, was never to sort of like try to win the argument. Mm -hmm. Her tactic was always to make sure that that person mm -hmm. felt heard. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. Yep. And, and maybe later they'd, they'd change their mind and maybe not, but if they did change their mind, it always was prefaced by them leaving that conversation feeling like, they had been heard and respected because mm -hmm. that's the other thing, dignity, respect, like you challenge those things that you, you shut yeah, off the gone. communication. Yep. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that is I teach a content strategy, intro, intro to content strategy workshop. And the very first exercise that we do is I tell people, I teach people how to interview. Mm. And that is the key thing. That is exactly the point that I tell them is that yes, the interview is for you to gather information, but most of the time, the other reason you're holding that interview is to make sure that that person feels heard. Because, you know, if you go down the racy chart, there are going to be a lot of people who need to be kept informed, right? Or along the way and uh, along the way of, of a, any kind of project. Um, and also people who are going to be consulted. And if you don't get those people on board right away, those are the ones going to, uh, I think it was Peter Merholtz that coined the term poop and swoop. Like those are the people that are, or swoop and poop that are going to come in and just like crap all over your project at the end and completely ruin things. You've got to have them on board from the beginning. And that exercise of, lis of listening to them and making sure that they feel heard, which is active listening, you know, just reflecting back and tell me more and so on is key to kind of winning the day. Yeah, I, the best piece of advice I ever got is from a guy named Alex Hillman who said, it is impossible to listen and react at the same time. 
Mm-hmm. And as I thought about it, I remembered conversations where, you know, you're at a party and someone's telling a story. And then in the back of your head, you're like, oh, that reminds me of a really cool story or a really I'm gonna fun I'm going to wait until they're done talking and then I'm going to talk. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And as soon as those gears start turning, you've stopped listening mm-hmm. and you've missed whatever else they had to say. And they can tell, like, as I try to practice active listening, I can literally see people's body language change when they can, when they realize someone's actually listening to them. Yep. And it's like probably the first time that's happened all day. So that's, it's, it's, it's a gift you can give people. Yep. And it is, it is nearly impossible to do when you're under pressure. Yeah. Like when you're feeling super agitated or you're not sure what the outcome of a thing is going to be, or you don't know what, you know, you feel like you don't have any options. Like that is when you start to get, it's like those things, you know, where you, the walls are narrower, right? You talk about all those different experiments in your book where it's like asking people to walk down a hallway. They feel like they have more choice, but narrower the hallway, right? The more they're like, well, I gotta, I gotta make sure that I have more options available. Like, when you feel more boxed into a situation, it's really, really hard to stay open. And that I think is, is uh, a thing that we all deal with both in our personal and professional and frankly, the political uh, landscape is, is trying to continually, and that's maybe where mindfulness comes in, like continually come back into the moment, just be like, I'm not under immediate threat. I'm in conversation. You know, I, if this person is truly like my, my, whether it's my partner or a good working partner or a collaborator that I trust them to be, I'm going to be heard. But right now it's my turn to listen. Yeah. It's funny, and to like, help them and know that I am hearing them. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's another, maybe that's another core competency we should be thinking about. So there's like, I love that you're teaching listening in your workshops. I wonder if like mindfulness should start becoming some of our workshops and some of our education around designing content. Uh, yeah. Cause that sounds like a core competency if we're going to do our jobs. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the role of behavioral skills and behavioral science in our mm-hmm. industry. Soft as, skills. Yeah, see that, mm-hmm. going back to language, right? Like that is language yeah. that clearly a man came up with. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's, what it equals is communication and empathy. That's yeah. all it is. It's communication and empathy and listening, you yeah. know? And uh, yeah, that that's the soft stuff that we have to like massage things or that, you know, that happens like in the, you know, in kind of like off the record conversations or whatever, like that sucks. And so coming at it more from like, yeah, that, what is the language you use? Behavioral skills or like maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Behavioral skills I've heard. And that like, sounds like behaviors. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, if you think about it, it's also something you do when you want to pay less for something, you call it soft. <laughs> It's like the same thing that happened to emotional labor. Like when I've seen emotional labor in a contract, it's called change management. What? Right? Like that's, that's essentially like it's the masculine business term for, for emotional labor, right? Because at the end of the day, you're trying to talk to people who don't want to be talked to and you're spending 50 hours on an email that should only take five minutes because you have to say it just right because they're going to freak out. That's emotional. That that, that is labor (laughs) that if someone wants to get paid more for it, like if a dude wants to get paid for it, like, I'm kind of going on a tangent, but not really. But <laughs> but no, but I think, I think podcast, that's absolutely true. Man, you talk about whatever you want. <laughs> you you're the you're the you're in charge here. I'm just following your lead. Um, I saw something and and if you don't want to talk about this, you don't have to, but someone wrote about how they could feel um, when they're active listening, something about uh, yeah, 
from Luke. I've developed awareness. Like your comment about your eyes, Luke, are you comfortable like just elaborating on that a bit? Because I think that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is something where like, I think part of this practice has come from being in the Zoom world. Um, mm. And just for context, I design, facilitate, manage uh, programming for young people in the city, uh, city of Philadelphia, um, in and around the space of professional identity development, which like talk about a space that has biases up, down, left, and right. Yeah. Um, and like really was, yeah, built by white men for white men and anyone else who might yeah. fit in, you figured out how to play our game, right? Um, and it's something where, for me, I really try to take a person-centered approach of like, cool, working with like 16 to 24 year olds in Philly, predominantly black and brown youth who do not have success with traditional workforce development and really trying to help connect with them wherever they are and like start to clear out their own value in the world. Not even connected to like work value yet, mm -hmm. but like their value as a human being. Right. Um, and it's something where in person, right? Cause it's like when you're doing this work it is constant emotional, like where are young people? And where like, what is the emotional reaction that you are giving me when I give you a prompt? And when doing that in person, it was something that it's like easy to emotionally engage and just like be attuned to body language, tone of voice, these types of things. And right, it's something where for me, it's like, okay, what's the next question? What's the next question? Yeah. And kind of found the like, okay, wait, am I in my body listening to you right now? Or am I right in that? Okay, 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 okay. And in the Zoom space, I'm starting to do this digitally. It's something where it's like, I could, again, it's like I could feel, and it is, it's like my eyes roll up or they go off screen. And it was like, okay, wait, you really have to be here because being present for someone is a way different thing now. Um, but it's also something I have found translate back into the rest of my life of, again, it's like, and again, I like feel it in my eyes of it's like, almost like my, the muscles in the back of my eyes that are focusing and it's like, are they focusing in? So I'm thinking, or am I focusing out? And like, even last night, uh, my partner and I were having just like a significant conversation because she's trying to figure out her work situation in the current moment. And like, as a partner, like using this same skill of like, okay, I'm listening to her and she's really being, you know, very vulnerable and going through it right now. And for me, it was like, okay, wait, okay, what do I want to say? And then it was, it was like, wait, your eyes are doing that thing again, like re-engage. Um, and like, as I think about this now, it's almost like my eyes connect to like my shoulders and my chest, like from a somatic perspective of like, it's like, okay, I'm in thinking. And it's like, wait, no, 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 be present and like, listen actively. So I feel like, I guess that's like a silver lining of the Zoom verse is like my own biases to like, when and where like I can notice the subtlety of like my body going into like react, react, react versus like just sit and hold space and listen. I think that's fascinating. And I, and I agree the zoom adds a really interesting dimension. And I think you've put a finger on why I like put my webcam where I do. So like right mm -hmm. now I have a setup where I've got a big like monitor and I've got a little laptop over here. And before, if I was going to do this and be able to see the big screen, I'd be looking like this when I'm on the call, which I always, for, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I didn't like that. I didn't like that I wasn't looking directly at people when I'm on call. So I got the camera. So it's more like I'm engaged and I agree. Like I've never thought of it that way, but I think it makes sense that physically 
there should be a manifestation that's different uh, than if I'm actively listening versus not. Can I just um, say though, that's exhausting. <laughs> it is exhausting it is, to be it is. actively yes. like this for seven, eight hours a day. Because, and also, I mean, you can see, I don't know if anybody even knows, but like when I am talking and sometimes when I'm listening, I'm looking out here because I'm thinking, right? Like I am a much more, um, I'm a, like, I, like I get very distracted visually. And so I have to like, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's hard though. I mean, what you're describing in a zoom environment is hard. And it, you know, when people talk about zoom fatigue, zoom fatigue, I think that that is a lot of it. It's not just, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be like this and be listening and stay open and whatever for, for so many hours on it. So. I, I, I agree. And we, we shouldn't be asking people to do it for eight hours straight. <laughs> like, like no. I think even like, you know, doing research or whatever, like I find like it is like, if you're doing active listening, right, it should be exhausting. Like if that's the sure. active part of active listening, sure. but I absolutely agree. Like we should be portioning that out. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, just like, Throwing something else in that, like I was facilitating a program with 12 young people, like 21 to 25 years old that was supposed to be in person and in April went to Zoom and like the first four weeks, it was two hours, right? It was a two hour program. And I was literally like finishing that class. It was from 5.30 to 7.30, finishing that class and like immediately going to sleep or like maybe eating dinner and immediately going to sleep. And eventually I was like, okay, after this is done, you need to put all screens away and go for a 45 minute walk. Um, Mm -hmm. because yeah, Mm -hmm. it was something where, and like, even the difference between like an hour, 45 minute to an hour engagement versus a two hour engagement. And like, we even had breaks planned throughout that because doing two hours on this is crazy, but yeah, it was like, okay, go use your body in some other way. Can Um, I, can I point something out real quick? And I know that we were at the top of the hour, but I just want to say this, that, this is a crazy thing to me about this time. And this has been ever evolving over the last six months, no matter what kind of a call I am on or conversation I am having, we always come back around to like, what's diff- what's difficult for us personally and physically and emotionally about the time that we're in right now. I mean, here we are in a conversation around, around, um, cognitive bias and content strategy. And yet we have come around to, sharing as a group, yeah, Zoom fatigue sucks, man. And here's how I'm dealing with it. And here's how, here's what I recommend. And this is what I, and I just, I just wanted to call that out because I think it's important to recognize that like all of these conversations that we're having, you know, uh, like they're couched in this reality of 2020, (laughs) do you know? And which is, I think, highlighting certain issues. I mean, this is why, you know, conversations around bias are, more critical than they've been, I would suggest in like decades potentially. But um, I also just want to like call out that, I don't know, this is, a, this is a tough time. And it's great that with all the, all the Zoom calls and the active listening and the engaging and the homeschool and all of this, that you all wanted to spend an hour with me and David today. So thank you. Yes, I, pr- I appreciate that. And that's, that's probably a good place to, to wrap it up. Um, thank you so much, Christina. Thank you so much, uh, Luke and Mike, for chiming in. Thank you so much, all of you, for coming uh, to the call. I am going to pop something into the chat right now, which is next week, I'm going to be chatting with Sarah Wachter-Betcher uh, about some similar topics. Um, 
Uh, so you can sign up for that. And the thing I just, oh, wait, that only went to one person. Hold on. Can I, can I, while you're doing that, can I plug mm -hmm. our upcoming event? Oh, please do. Yes. Because the reason I want to plug it is that, so this is an event around content strategy for digital products and content design and UX writing. The topics we are talking about today are fueling just about every single talk and panel and, and conversation that are happening at this conference. Like it's not just about like content. It is about how are we working to shape and evolve experiences that are inclusive, that consider bias, that empower people, that, you know, enable them to get up and deal with the day to day. Like that's really what the, that conversation is, how that's shaping up. And that's, we're going to, we had for Confab in May, we had this extraordinarily active, vibrant Slack workspace that evolved uh, with the conference that ended up just creating all kinds of amazing connections to go and build better things. So if this is, you know, if you work in design or content and that, and this is, these are conversations that are resonating with you, you're going to find your people at Button. So you go to buttonconf.com and check it out. And if you do it by tomorrow, we're going to match your ticket with a scholarship through our equity fund. Thank you, David. Yeah, and this is no, this is something I want to I want to point out. So a, so I put I put the link in the to the button conference oh, yeah, in, the, in the the chat. So so you can y'all can sign up for that now. But we didn't have time to talk about it today, so maybe we'll have you back later. But the community, Christina and Tanessa, and the whole Confab team has built is probably the best conference related community I have ever seen, both in person and they maintained it online in part by Thank making you. sure we got up and walked around between sessions. <laughs> Um, and in terms of bias, they put their money where their mouth is, right? So I know that they do, like, if you're submitting to their conference, like they do not know who you are when they first look at your yep. talk. Yep. Like we they, do a blind read. they actively try to curb their bias in that mm -hmm. process. And then the equity fund she just mentioned, like that is putting your money where your mouth is and leaving money on the table potentially in order to make sure that as yep. many people as can benefit show up. So I just want to like shout that out for, for you. what you're doing and thank you for it. Well, thank you. That was not like an open invitation, but I appreciate all of that. That means a lot coming from you. So I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you all uh, for coming. Like I said, this is going to be up uh, soon. Uh, if you subscribe to the Cognitive Bias podcast, I suppose I should actually put that in there as well. Um, <laughs> you can see this pop up in your feed uh, pretty soon. For the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm your host, David Dillon-Thomas. Thank you all for joining. Bye.